Welcome to Puck Talks, the podcast. I am the founder and uh, your host for today, Kevin Kennedy. Today's episode features Dave Bedini. He is an author, a uh, member of The Real Statics. He is a columnist. He is a of, uh, just a general raconteur. He's a good buddy of mine too, and I, I play hockey with him every once in a while. He's going to do a reading from his book, Keon and Me, which uh, talks about his relationship with... Uh, you know, with Dave Keon, with the Leafs, with being a Leaf fan in Etobicoke in the 70s and um, and what that all meant. And, and it's really a peek behind uh, behind the curtain to, to his life at that time. Really compelling stuff. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the talk. Uh, it's followed by a Q&A with um, uh, Matt Brown from uh, the Fan 590. And, uh, yeah, I think you'll, you'll really enjoy it. Um, if you don't know what Puck Talks is, it's it's a speaker series. Uh, about hockey and it's for hockey lovers it's a chance to get together and talk about hockey and uh, drink a couple beers and tell tell stories maybe some stories that uh, you wouldn't be able you haven't heard before or the media wouldn't be able to tell uh, on the radio or on TV because maybe they are um, you know the language isn't good enough you know just a story that they can't really tell there and the show is is as much about the people on the stage as it is the guy beside you or the girl beside you. You know, it, it, is, it is not often that you're able to be in a room where everybody in the room is very passionate about the same thing. And I think that's what the, the magic of Puck Talks is. Um, and, you know, to that end, we're, we're taking the show on the road. We've done three shows, four shows actually here in Toronto, and we're finally uh, able to take the show on the road. Next week, we'll be in Winnipeg on September the 15th uh, at The Pint with Hustler and Lawless. Uh, as well as Sarah Orleski. On uh, Wednesday, September the 16th, we'll be in Calgary, again at the Pine. All these shows are at the Pine, actually. Uh, the, the Calgary show is Eric uh, Dehatchik, um, Roger Millions, and Eric Francis, among others. On Thursday, September the 17th, we'll be in Edmonton with uh, Jason Strudwick, Mark Spector, Bob Stoffer, and more. On Friday, we'll be in Vancouver, James Zabalski, Caroline Cameron, and Ray Ferraro. So it's going to be some great shows. We're going to talk about all things uh, all things hockey, um, and it's going to be a lot of fun. You can get tickets at www.pucktalkslive.com. Follow us at Puck Talks Live, and uh, I really hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by Tallboys Craft Beer House, 838 Bloor Street West in Toronto, your home of the largest selection of craft beer in the entire city. Um, so this book is, uh, it came out, uh, it's just out in paperback, came out uh, last year. It's basically an account of me stalking Dave Keon, um, which I did purposely to try to get him to talk to me. He's sort of been in self-imposed exile for the last uh, 40 years or so, ever since he was defrocked. Ballard stripped the sea from him, and uh, he went to the WHA. And he's only been back a couple of times. But uh, he, when I was 11 years old, Dave Keown was my hero, who was my whole world. He totally represented um, everything that was great about the world. You know, I knew Dave Keon's name. Um, he was the first name other than, like, my mom and my dad and my sister's name that I was aware of in the world. And uh, uh, Dave Keon was only ever in one professional fight one, one fight in his uh, hockey career, it was his last game as a Toronto Maple Leaf in the regular season. He fought Greg Shepard of the Boston Bruins. And after he did that, he turned to uh, Ray Scampanello and asked him what he was supposed to do now. 
Um, you go to the penalty box, Dave. Uh, so uh, he, he was only ever in one fight. And so uh, in grade 11, uh, sorry, in grade 7, I was 11 years old at Dixon Grove Middle School, my first year in a middle school. Um, uh, I was bullied by a dude named Roscoe. And uh, uh, he was a Flyers fan, which made it even worse. But I refused to fight back because Dave Keon didn't fight back. And so the book is kind of divided into two halves. One is written for, uh, in the third person. It's an account of me as a boy as, as, at 11 years old in 1974. And the other half is me as a 51-year-old man trying to find Dave and um, trying to talk to him to basically tell him the story of, uh, of uh, my life in 1974 at, at 11 and how grateful I was that he fought Greg Shepard of the Boston Bruins because after he fought Greg Shepard of the Boston Bruins, I fought back uh, against, against um, the guy who was terrorizing me after school. And part of the book as well as I go looking for him also through the course of the narrative. But um, one, I sort of offer in the book uh, the idea that if I find Dave Keon and I tell him the story of my life in 1974, somehow magically... The Leafs' fortunes will reverse, and success will finally be bestowed upon this uh, franchise. Uh, so I don't know what's going to happen this year, but um, I like to think that maybe it's sort of an, a part, partly personal exorcism. And with our relationship with sports, it's so personal anyways, and we, help, we like to think that our personal relationship with teams affect the nature of those teams. So I sort of talk a little bit about this in the book, but I'm just going to read from Chapter 2. Um, which is a chapter about sort of my um, the, the moment in my life be- when I became aware that I had to write about Dave Keown and I had to write um, this type of book. Um, and I'd, People had been wanting me to write a Maple Leafs book for years, but I could never really find the right way of getting into the story to make it an interesting story, to tell it in a particular way. And it wasn't until I sort of had this epiphany, came upon this vision, uh, that I knew that I, this would be the kind of Maple Leaf book that I would want to write. So... This is a, yeah, this is in the first person. I used to love winter until the Leafs ruined it. Well, not all of it, but certainly enough of it. In the distant past, the first shimmer of snow once brought about feelings of hope and promise in times of cold and darkness. But after years of disappointment and sadness and a few years after that, Early evenings no longer meant running home at great speed or driving haphazardly through city traffic or willing the subway to move faster through the tunnel to get back in time for the game. Winter nights had me hoping the Leafs wouldn't play so badly that the thought of what I'd find in the next morning's sports pages made sleep difficult. Where the season was once bliss, now it was burden. Also the flu, frozen pipes, broken car heaters, and knees bruised after a fall. Ice, salt, traffic... There were other vagaries, too. I learned to live with the pain, although writing that down, I knew it was a bullshit line. My pain wasn't the worst kind. It wasn't tragic relative to the world's tragedies, nor was it personally tragic. In fact, my life had largely been a series of untragedies, although like anyone, I'd suffered and lost and been pricked by the hooked barb of fate. Still, I'd been relatively lucky. I earned a living uh, doing what I loved to do, and my family was fine and healthy and well-balanced. Also, the winter yielded lots of good hockey, too, at least the kind playing with my three men's teams and strangers at the outdoor rink. In fact, the only thing that wasn't fine or healthy or well-balanced was that which followed me around like a sad, tired bird floating across the topography of my life. 
The Leafs so imposed themselves that I wondered whether I would have traded in one of those other good things for the team to be less terrible. Although writing that down, I knew it was a bullshit line too. Still, they were bad, had been bad, would probably continue to be bad. While this didn't hold me back from leading a good life, it didn't make it better. The team was my albatross and millstone, a heavy thing slumped across my shoulders that I was required somehow by birth to carry. A smarter man would have changed NHL teams, would have sworn off his allegiance. I'd watched friends betray their fandom, choosing different sports entirely, in both cases soccer, to fill the enormous vacuum created by the least futility. Many times I'd set out to make changes only to be pulled back into terminal fandom the way a character in a sci-fi movie gets punted into deep space after the door to a spacecraft is pulled open. In fact, traveling through the nothingness and solitude of the universe wasn't far from what it liked, felt like to be a fan. My allegiance was a black hole, a chasm, an existential crevasse. It weighed me down with its heavy emotional tar, and while some pitied my anger and sadness, most just shook their heads and laughed. I was a freak to those who didn't understand. Those who did compared miseries the way people who'd been to war or had come through poverty or had risen above illness talked about their lives. Still, if they were dealing largely with the past, others like me were chained to an eternity of suffering and other bullshit line, but still. After writing these thoughts down in the late evening quiet of my kitchen, a perfectly nice kitchen filled with perfectly nice things, and the sound of perfectly nice people doing perfectly nice things in other perfectly nice rooms, I heard myself sigh. I decided to take a walk, but check the radio first. Florida won nothing. I swore and reached for my coat. At season's end, it would be the eighth consecutive year the Leafs had missed the playoffs and the 43rd straight year they would not win the Stanley Cup among the worst droughts in all of pro sports. A few years before, the Blackhawks had defeated the Flyers to win the Stanley Cup, their first in 49 years. The morning after their victory, I shuffled downstairs in my pajamas. It was early summer and the hockey season was over. I pressed my fists into my eyes, yawned, yelled upstairs for the children to get out of bed. Actually, that's a lie, and my wife did most of the yelling. And I stood in the living room looking for the remote. After finding it, I turned on the TV to find this written on the screen. Leafs, biggest losers in hockey. I harumphed. This is also a lie. I don't really harumph. While continuing to weigh, I'm a weigher, it turns out, what it meant to be a diehard fan of the biggest losers in hockey. Not only that, but the biggest losers in the biggest market in the biggest city in Canada. Imagine the Yankees not reaching a league final since 1967 or Man United as a laughing stock of world soccer. Actually, don't, because you can't. Recent victories by the Blackhawks or Bruins only serve to mock me and others like me. The biggest losers in hockey, right there, written on the screen. I walked down the front steps and I headed south. It was early spring but warm, crocuses pushing too early through the too moist earth, and yard birds singing June, below, June melodies below April skies which loomed slow, snowless and strangely pink. I wore an, a, an old ravaged blue hoodie with a maple leaf crest stitched on the back, a crest that should have unsewn itself from the fabric by now but somehow had not. I felt loyal to the hoodie because it had survived nearly 20 years shelled over my head and torso, and besides, it was warm and softly lived in, if possessing traces of every scent through which it had ever passed, for better or worse. I gathered my arms in the hoodie's pouch, one hand finding the other through opposite sides. 
Moving down the street through the city, I thought of the government and sex and money and kids and school and my column and music and sex and gigs. But across that thought frequency, Florida won nothing, dinged like a bell at an empty desk in a cobwebbed hotel staffed by no one. Florida won nothing, reminding me that the Leafs had fallen to last in their division, although I knew that was too common a description for what had happened. Spiraled down was probably a more appropriate way of putting it, but so was tumbled from a great height, although pulled asunder and sucked into the void and collapsed under a great crushing weight and rotted from its historically fetid insides, and 40 men digging an enormous sporting trench into which they vaulted also did the trick. After sitting in sixth place by Christmas, the Leafs had won five games, lost 16, and suffered through a 10-game home loss record, a new franchise mark. Their dramatic general manager, a large, florid Irish New Englander named Brian Burke, who would be fired the next year, said that following the team's plummeting fortunes was like watching an 18-wheeler going off a cliff. I wondered what lay at the bottom of the cliff. Since the team lacked any feel-good protein, the narrative of losing provided a strange kind of sustenance. And resigned to bad hockey, I craved the drama of failure, the way a theater-goer relishes Oswald Alving and Ibsen's ghost admitting he is syphilis, or the moment a Tennessee Williams doyen goes mad. I walked to the variety store. My boots dragged and made a sad, slow sound across the sidewalk, even though by nature I am not an unhappy man. Then I heard a voice. I'm going to fuck him up, bro. Fuck him up. Four young men stood in an alcove 10 feet ahead of me, angry, shouting, tattooed. The angriest of them, 18 years old, maybe 19, was frothing at the mouth, probably stoned on some new drug I'd never heard of and would never try. They were all wearing blue and white maple leaf sweaters. I saw two of them, Kessel and Fanuf, standing in a close menacing circle, made less menacing by the names of the players on their backs. <laughs> I'd like to take a piece out of that douchebag, said the angriest one, grabbing the bundle of his crotch. He grabbed it hard. It looked like it hurt. Ha! shouted the smallest of the men who wore a turned-around baseball cap with a Chinese character over the bill. They pushed their chests together and high-fived, laughing a mean, cackling laugh. I walked closer to the men. Other times I might have crossed the street careful not to draw attention to myself. I might have pulled my own baseball cap over my eyes or feeling brave, maybe smiled at them, said hello, trying to disarm them with kindness, although I did this far less than I like to imagine. But this time I did something I hadn't done in ages at least not since before the Leafs were an embarrassment and a humiliation. I walked closer still. My relationship with the Leafs was abusive, like having a really bad boyfriend or girlfriend. They were the worst, most fatiguing partner in hockey, and because they were, I'd given up starting conversations about the team on subways and streetcars, buses, and trains. And pressing upon people my sense of cultural insight, I used to say, you know, the best way to connect with total strangers is to ask them if they saw the game last night. Ask them about the Leafs and you'll always get a response. But those times had faded. After a while, these discussions were nothing more than a laundry list of complaints, both parties feeling upset that it had come to this. Rather than drawing people together, my favorite team had wedged us apart. The streets had fallen silent. As I got closer, the kids looked up at me. I moved towards the angriest one who had a neck tattoo, rings wound over his fingers, and two gold teeth patterned across his grill. He was smoking furiously. I showed the angry young man the fullness of my eyes, which reflected the sallow, terrible pulp of nearly five decades of disappointment caused by the worst partner in hockey. Kessel and Phaneuf 
and the angriest ones stood in my path. They put their hands in their pockets, building a wall of blue and white on the sidewalk. I moved closer, and then I spoke. One nothing Florida. Ah, fuck, said the angriest one, shaking his head. I also shook my head. Fucking leaves. <laughs> yeah, he parroted, fucking leaves. They moved out of the way. I walked under the doorframe of the variety store and looked back to confirm that they hadn't jackbooted me in the alcove, burned my hoodie, and waved it like a flag, although I told myself that the idea of someone in a leaf sweater beating me into submission would have been a poetic end of my life. <laughs> the group stood together, the angriest one facing away. I read the name on the back of his sweater. I read it twice, then a third time. It gave me pause because I hadn't thought about the player's name in years. It was a good name, Keon. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. Right on, Maddie. Thanks. Cheers. Good way to describe the leaves. Not right now. Uh, more into that book, though, I think, when we talk about Dave Keon, for me, is um, I mentioned earlier how so many, so many people are young, don't mm. remember Dave Keon. Um, the rock star lifestyle to be a Maple Leaf then. Uh, we see it now, but he was the captain of the Maple Leafs. Well, he was, a, and he was a Quebecois, too. He was born in uh, Noranda, Rouen, as well, which is a remarkable thing when you think about it. I mean, a lot of people talk about, you know, the two solitudes and, and, and unity, and, and uh, you know, Team Canada 72 had an Italian-Canadian, a Frenchman, and a guy named Henderson on the line, which was a beautiful kind of way of reflecting our country, I think, at that time. But... Um, it was important. It was vital, you know. And, and also, one of the great things about Keon was he drove the Habs crazy. I mean, Dick Irvin talks about. I want to think it's. I think it's Game Six in the Montreal Forum. Might have been 1964. My dates might be a little shuffled about. Uh, the Leafs beat the Habs uh, in the semifinal, and Dave Keon scored all three goals. And it was almost as if it was a personal thing with him. Partly, he was. Um, he spoke fluent French, and wrote, I talk. Uh, I go to um, Noranda Rouen. Um, there's a series of kind of journeys in this book uh, which sort of see me circling closer and closer to him um, until ultimately I found out where he... He lives in West Palm Beach, Florida, and I found out through a friend where he cycles every morning. And so I was going to, like, just fly down there and rent a bike and then, like, pedal up behind him. It's like... Uh, um, and as you'll sort of see in the book, because I did those things, I think ultimately he, he, he relented to to um, at least considering having a conversation. But, um, yeah, you go back in that time, and, like, I have friends uh, who were named after him, who were born, you know, in the, in the 60s um, and, and 70s and stuff, too. Number 14, you know, and you still go to Leaf games, and you see people with Keon sweaters and stuff. He was, uh, he won a ton of cups, you know. He won a ton of cups. He was the Conn Smythe Trophy winner. Um, he won the Lady Bing, two leagues. And he was an exceptional hockey player. It's one of those things that the relationship between Keon and the Maple Leafs organization, we've just watched last week everything that went on with Mr. Beliveau and the right. way he was honored. Right. And you look at the Leafs' history, and there's so many great players, but you've got Bobby Orr, you've got Beliveau, you've got Richard. Right. Um, there's so many of these guys throughout 
the, the big teams, Keon really is the guy for the Leafs, but we don't know that. Right. Because it's just... It's well, you can look it up. They have it on the internet now. <laughs> and it tells all about who he is. But I think, you know, in a way, um, because his numbers are superior to any Leaf that ever played. They really are. Um, um, but, but for me, you know, as a writer, uh, uh, it's infinitely more interesting that he ignores the team and that they ignore him. Like, in a way, the worst thing that could have happened to me while I was writing this book was that would him have, would, would, would have been for him to be welcomed back in the fold. And, uh, so he's a more, you know, it's interesting. Bellevaux was an incredible statesman and all that, but statesmen are kind of a little bit, just a little bit boring, right? I mean, I don't know. It's the, it's the, it's the players who you know, grind a little bit against their legacy, against who they are that I think are more interesting. So, all right. It's true. Nowadays, I think the guys that go against the grain, the PK Subans and whatnot, are the yeah. ones that we, we want to see more of that way. And there's just many people who don't, too. The New Yorker had a story about PK Subban last week, and it was a lot about, about that. Um, and I think that's what, yeah, for sure. You want there to be discussion you want them to be if they're powerful it's a if it's a power if it's a strong flavor it's going to be people are going to push the plate away and then people are going to want more and those are the most interesting type of athletes i think for sure did you at any point get the impression that this relationship will ever be healed uh i don't think it will ever be healed and that that is i mean that's partly sad because i do think uh I think um, there's, there is still is time for redemption, but I, he doesn't want anything, want any part of it. And I got the sense largely through, I don't want to spoil the book um, by revealing whether I talked to him or not, but um, the general sense of, of, I think, from him is that, and McKinney says this in the book, it's like, why do you want to go and celebrate something you did 40 years ago? And I think there's some, I think there's something that's uh, interesting about that. And... You know, again, the person that's going to show up at every event that's going to leap to go to the banquets to do the speeches and stuff. You know, who's really trying to fill the void in that instance? You know, some people I think want it a little bit too much. I think probably Keon doesn't want it nearly enough. Maybe you could want it a little bit more because people like me get a chance to celebrate it. But that's one of the reasons I wrote the book too. So, in lieu of all those celebrations, people can read this and get a sense of who he is. So, I'll ask you one more before you guys can ask some questions. Um, and when we talk about Mr. Belleville, everything. Right. How is Keon remembered in Toronto and by everyone in the hockey world? Um, not to say it's going to happen, but when we do have to remember him that way. Oh, you mean when he passes? Yeah, I don't know what yeah. to say that. That's okay. Everybody dies. But, um, yeah, I don't know. You mean, uh, uh, well, it's remarkable that he, was a, that he played in, the, in a league where there were six teams in a, a vicious kind of game. Probably hockey, at, you know, at its most, you know, it, at its raw. Certainly, it's certainly its most violent. Because in the seventies, it was a violent circus, but in the fifties and sixties, about forties, it was just violent. There wasn't any of the. There was no clowning, right? It was just serious. It was it was pretty heavy duty. And he was able to play in that time for twenty years, and you know, never get in a fight. It's almost it's almost. And I talk in the book about you know he almost he could disarm you. I've watched films and stuff, and he could almost disarm you by looking at you a certain way, like the other player would knew just to not fuck with him. Because I think all those people thought like, 
there was rumors that kind of went around in the league. It's like, he's going to lose it one day and he's going to kill someone. And I, th- I don't think he manufactured that, but that was general sense around the league. So people just didn't want to bother with him. He's obviously very strong and very, very tough and stuff too. But that's remarkable. I think that's probably how, that's one of the things I think he'll be remembered for that, for just being able to walk away and not, uh, and not have to resort to that. And uh, still be tough, right? One, is there footage, or has, has anyone ever been able to account the fight? Like, to, is there anything from it? Uh, yeah, the tapes have been erased. They've been erased? Yeah, that game, unfortunately. There's a ton of stuff that's, that's erased, but yeah, that was one of them, unfortunately. Molson's at one point, in all of their wisdom, because they owned all it, just decided, I guess, one weekend to just, I'll just bulk erase a bunch of stuff. We use those tapes to tape cooking show with or whatever that's what it wasn't it wasn't important to them for some reason you know Which it's sad it's almost poetic in a way that the fight doesn't exist though right totally yeah well put for sure uh with that opportunity i'll open up to you guys uh i know so many of you look like you're it's kind of early in the night for questions i realize but uh <laughs> yeah anyone out we got one back there Thanks for standing up. Joe Pack, everybody. Oh, that's Joe Pack? Wow. He's way more handsome than I thought he would be. Just kidding. Thank you. It's very dark, so I appreciate that, too. Um, I fell in love with the Leafs with the 92-93 team. I was very young, um, and I watched that tape all the time, The Passion Returns. Uh, and the last image of it is Wendell Clark slamming a stick down on the guys, and, and they lose. And people don't understand when I explain to them that um, that I can be in love with the team that perennially loses. Right. Uh, what what is it, you know, for you personally, or what have you found out from other sports fans, Leafs fans, um, why they why they stick with the team that loses, and what they learn from being a, a fan of a team that loses? Geez, it's a it's a loaded question, and probably deserves a loaded answer. And I, not sure I can rise to it, but um, yeah, you, in a way, in a way, you have a better story to tell. It's true, um, and I think a film that doesn't have a Hollywood ending is always a more interesting film, um, and it probably says a lot more about life. Um, uh, uh, you know, following a team that has this kind of misfortune, because life is largely that, punctuated by moments of light, but. Um, I, th- I often think about, you know, in st- 93, in a way, um, it was such a great year. I had such a, an amazing year um, following that whole run. Our band had put out our best record, and we'd, we'd toured a bunch, and our, our sort of our profile and our art was certainly at, on the rise. And I remember being in um, Montreal that night playing at Club Soda on the night of Game 7. And it was interesting because we were gigging that entire time and there was inevitably uh, the gigs would fall on game nights. I remember game seven against St. Louis and we got like three songs into the set, four songs into the set. And I remember asking very nervously because uh, there, there were no laptops at the time, right? So you couldn't really monitor the game and uh, asking if anybody had the score and a kid leapt up, up from his seat. Six one Leafs. It's like, well, we had the greatest gig ever that night too, right? <laughs> you know, they were going to face... Uh, LA in the next round it was continuing and then at Club Soda in game 7 we somebody brought a TV a black and white TV that we had in the dressing room before the show and uh, you know it was 3-3 going into the third 
And our road manager, uh, who was an Australian named Richard Bergman, who was a scary dude. He had a heart of gold, too, but he was a scary dude. Um, he was like, it was 11.30, midnight. You know, we were had supposed to go on at 10, 10 o'clock, and the crowd had been waiting. And um, he said, he told me that there's hockey and then there's life. And I said, Richard, you understand, you're Australian. Hockey is life. He's like, get the fuck out on stage. <laughs> so I went out on stage, again, played a couple of songs, and then I asked if anybody was listening to the game when there was a kid whom I met recently too. I hadn't seen him in like 20 years. I met him at West, but he had a transistor radio with him and he was listening in his earphone while he was um, watching the band. And I brought him up on stage and he actually did play-by-play from his earphone of the last tragic 30 seconds of that game in which the Leafs lost. And then I went to the main in Montreal and I totally lost it. I went by myself two o'clock in the morning and the, the, the early presses of the Gazette had just come out. Habs marching to the Stanley Cup, you know, the way it is in Montreal, right? You know, face into the, into the, into the grapefruit slice, you know, just making it worse. And, uh, you know, I just totally lost it. And the thing that was sad about that was going to, I was in, you know, I was in Montreal that night and the Leafs were going to beat L.A., and it was going to be this incredible moment in Canadian sporting history. The Leafs and the Habs are going to play. Montreal was ready for us. You know, there was all kinds of Habs paraphernalia and all the storefronts and everything, and fate conspired. So they might have gone and played the Habs and lost in four games, but they didn't. And because they didn't, I think there's a better story to tell. And storytelling is so important to us as Canadians, I think in our culture in general and stuff too. So anyways... That's, 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 that's why I think it's, it's okay. Teaches you about life. In the book I talk, just one little quick, uh, I talk about before a season, I built, uh, in Bristol board, I cut out, um, a, uh, in Bristol board, I cut out the shape of a bottle of chocolate milk and put the leaf schedule on it for my kids. And I filled in every game and I said, when the Leafs win five games in a row, I'm going to get you a bottle of chocolate milk. Yay! the Leafs and they like won they never won more than two games in a row that year (laughs) and so somebody saw it and said like Dave and my wife said Dave's just teaching them about disappointment is an important (laughs) lesson and that was Dave Bedini at Puck Talks uh, from last year December the 17th 2014 here in Toronto reading from his book Keon and Me which is available at all your local bookstores um, and uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Don't forget, we have our next Puck Talks here in Toronto on September the 24th at the Randolph Theatre. Info and uh, tickets available at pucktalkslive.com. We are also going on tour. We have a show going right through across Western Canada, September 17th in Winnipeg with Hustler and Lawless, Sarah Lesky and a lot more. Uh, September the 16th in Calgary, uh, Eric Dehatrick. Uh, Roger Millions, Eric Francis, uh, September 17th in Edmonton, Mark Spector, Bob Stoffer, Jason Strudwick, Jason Gregor, um, and in Vancouver we have uh, on the 18th, on the Friday night, we have James Sabalski, Caroline Cameron, Irfan Gaffar, Ray Ferraro, tons of great, great speakers. It's going to be just great nights of storytelling. Tickets available on our website, uh, pucktalkslive.com. Follow along at pucktalks. And uh, hopefully I'll get to meet all you guys uh, in person. I love to meet our, our fans, and I really appreciate all of your support. Thanks. 
Puck Talks was created by Kevin Kennedy. This podcast was produced by the Brothers DePaul in association with Homestand. Music in today's episode was brought to you by Zeus from Arts and Crafts. And